In last week's episode, we walked through some of the supplemental reports outlining Detective Doucet and Carazal's investigation into Jim's murder. On the surface, the investigation seemed somewhat superficial. A quick canvas of the neighborhood, an interview with one of Jim's co-workers, a check of some surveillance camera footage, and a bunch of forensic testing that didn't yield any inculpatory evidence. To this day, I still find myself baffled by the fact that Sandy was charged and indicted for Jim's murder. As I said last week, charges were denied in 2012 due to a lack of evidence. And the next year and a half of investigation left Carazal and Doucet in the exact same situation. They didn't find anything to help them build their case against Sandy. But the fact of the matter is that Sandy was charged, arrested, and indicted. Then she was taken to trial and convicted a few years later. I want to know what exactly went on with the investigation over those 19 months. What did the lead investigator discover? And the best way to figure that out is to review Detective Sean Carazal's trial testimony. And that's the topic of today's episode. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You've seen the film. You know the game. Now, Jumanji just got real. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Featuring Daredevil Dad, Mom on a Mission, and the kids who can't wait to ride the world's first Jumanji roller coaster. An epic adventure awaits. World of Jumanji. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Book this summer's must-do day out at Chessington.com. Sean Corazal was the lead investigator into Jim's case. However, the prosecution chose not to call him to the stand as a witness, which most definitely isn't the norm, but we've seen this before. If the prosecutor thinks that the detective's testimony might do more harm than good, the right move is to not call him or her as a witness. In this case, I think most people will agree that Corazal could have done a better job. Whether you believe Sandy is innocent or guilty, I'd like to think that we can all at least admit that the investigation wasn't the best. And that could be part of the reason Carlsall wasn't called upon to testify by the state. That, and the fact that he was fired before the trial because he allegedly backdated a search warrant in another case. And even though his screw-up wasn't linked to Sandy's case, I can imagine that it was something that the prosecution didn't necessarily want to bring up in front of the jury. Luckily, in this case, we did get to hear from Detective Carrizal. Max Seacrest put him on the stand as a defense witness, which is a pretty bold move if you ask me. Seacrest wanted the jury to hear firsthand how Carrizal investigated Jim's murder. The result is 224 pages of trial transcript. So let's go ahead and dig in and hear what Sean Carrizal had to say about his own investigation. Direct examination begins with Mac asking Carazal about his current employment status. He was hired as a high school teacher about three weeks before the trial. 
I don't think there's much of a point in getting that information out to the jury other than to maybe lay the foundation for the coming revelation about him losing his job at Harris County. And right after that, the conversation quickly jumps into identifying Carzal as the lead investigator in Jim's murder case. And then Seacrest starts throwing some punches. Question. Do you have any idea why the state of Texas, the prosecution, is not calling the lead investigator in a murder case as a witness? Barnett objects, which of course is not relevant. That objection was sustained by the judge. As Max starts to dig in, he's pretty clearly attempting to point out any and all mistakes that Carazal made throughout the investigation, beginning on the night that he was called to the scene. He first asked him about how long it took him to write his report. Then he's asked if he ever checked to see if the door from the garage into the house had a working locking mechanism. Of course it didn't, and no one, not Carazal, Doucet, or Carpenter, ever checked. And then we move on to the 911 tapes. Matt calls Carazal on the carpet about him not ordering the 911 tapes to be preserved. Carazal holds his own here. He replies that all of the people who were present and who called 911 were interviewed that night on the scene, and therefore it wasn't necessary to pull the tapes. But then Mac makes a pretty good point about the fence around the backyard. Here in the transcript, Mac is quoting back to Carazal from his own report. Mac, I observed no damage to the perimeter of the fence. The wood on top of the fence appeared to have no pieces of wood missing on the edges. Carazal, yes, sir. Mac, what were you trying to convey as to that reference? Carazal, oh, sure. When I do my walkthrough, that's one thing I do look at. I look at the edge of the top of fence. Like, does it appear that anybody would jump over the fence? They would leave shavings or anything like that on the very top of the fence. That's one thing I really take a close look at. That's why I put that in the report, and at that time, I didn't see anything missing off the edges of the top of the fence. And then Mac responds, I'm trying to figure out why anybody would climb over the fence when you can go through the unlocked gate of the fence. And Barnett objects to that, which was sustained. The truth of the matter is that we know for a fact that the fence gate was unlocked because Herman Milgar walked right through it when he and his family arrived at the scene that night. What Seacrest is trying to do here is make sure the jury is aware of two things. Number one, the investigators on the scene missed a lot. And number two, the reports generated by the officers on the scene seem to have been written in a way so as to make it appear that there was no way that anyone other than Sandy and Jim were in the house that night. If you just read the report, you see that there is no sign of anyone climbing over the fence. But what you don't see are any notes that the gate was in fact unlocked and there would be absolutely no reason for anyone to climb over the fence to begin with. This next segment of the testimony is significant. It's been pointed out over and over again that Herman Melgar was never interviewed by the detectives in this case. So there's no need to continue to beat that dead horse. We know that he gave a statement to the Spanish-speaking Deputy Garcia on the night that Jim's body was found, and he was never interviewed again. But what we find out during this next line of questioning is shocking. At least, I think it's shocking. I'll read the exchange directly from the transcript. Question. Okay, do you, do you remember a gentleman by the name Herman Melgar? Let me help you while you're looking. Do you remember that Mr. Herman Melgar was the brother of the deceased, Jamie Melgar, and he actually was the person who found Sandy Melgar in the closet with the chair against the doorknob and ultimately tried to untie her, but ultimately cut her bindings off her wrists and her arms, and then you might recall that his wife, Maria Melgar, assisted and ultimately got the bindings off of Mrs. Melgar's feet. Does that ring a bell? Answer. This is a person 
I interviewed is what is that what you're asking? No, I'm not suggesting you interviewed them. I'm asking, are you aware who Herman Melgar is? Do you agree with me that the person I described would be a pretty central witness to the investigation? He's the first person that found Ms. Melgar tied up in the closet, right? Answer. Yes. So did you ever interview him at any time? I'll help you with that by letting you know that Deputy Garcia interviewed them, but I'm asking you. Did you, at any time as lead investigator, took it upon yourself to do any kind of follow-up investigation and ask either Herman Melgar or Maria Melgar any questions concerning what they might know about this case? Answer. If they were interviewed by Officer Garcia and he took a statement from them, no. Question. Okay, and once, let's just, just trust me that Officer Garcia interviewed those folks and that interview was recorded. That's pretty standard procedure, right? Yes. Okay, so when in all of this investigation would you have either listened to the recording or reviewed a transcription of the recording since they spoke Spanish? Did that ever happen? What happens is, if they do speak Spanish in a case like this, once again, we're working in teams. It's not like there's a gap in between them. We're always communicating with each other and during investigation. Okay. We're in a bay that we sit next to each other. Mac. So when was it during the course of your involvement in this investigation that you actually read the transcription of the interview that took place between Deputy Garcia and Herman and Maria Melgar? Curazal. I don't have a copy of my report. That's all I can... So your report doesn't even indicate that at any time you never even reviewed that transcription. Is that a fair statement? Answer. Correct. And as you sit here under oath, can you tell the jury that, in fact, at some point your investigation, you actually did review it? Review what? The transcription of the questioning of Herman and Maria Melgar that was conducted by Deputy Garcia. Did you, in fact, actually review it? The way it's set up in our report system, and no, it's not a fact that I did the transcribe, how it works in the Sheriff's Department is once the investigator completes the supplement, they do a little summary. What information they receive from the witness. In addition, we also communicate on what was important, if there's anything else I need to do in the investigation, and that's... Matt cuts him off. So do I take it by your answer that you do some communication? You talk to somebody over a cup of coffee or on the phone. You may read a summary or a synopsis. But it's very, it's very possible that you actually don't take the time to personally review the transcription of exactly what was said. Fair statement? Well, the way you're presenting it is that, like, we're relaxed and going to sit back and read it over a cup of coffee. I would say, no, that's not right. We take this very serious. We don't sit around and drink coffee and just throw information out there. Everything is closely manned. We communicate with each other. No, I did not see the full transcribed information, but I also do talk to somebody and get information from them and see if there's anything important that I need to go any further into the investigation. So here we are four pages into this yes or no question and still no direct answer. Mac finally gets what he's looking for with the next question. Quote, So if I understand your answer, the answer is no, you did not review the transcript. Answer. Correct. Yes. I'm doing my best not to get pissed off as I go through this testimony, but honestly, I cannot believe this shit. I knew that Carazal never interviewed Herman, which already irritated me, but then to find out he never even bothered to read the interview transcript. I mean, come on. Herman is the only witness who actually knows how Sandy was bound. He saw how she was positioned. He knows how the chair was blocking the door. He is the most important witness in this entire case. And nothing. Reading this testimony is like transcribing a nightmare. 
Mac continues on to point out Carazal's mistakes. Next up is the fact that in his report, he wrote that Sandy's car was parked in the East Bay of the garage. It was actually in the West Bay, as you're aware. This isn't that big of a deal, in my opinion, just an honest mistake. But then Mac moves on to the garage door openers in the Melgar's cars. He asked Carazal if he checked to see if Jim's truck door was unlocked, and also if there was a garage door opener inside the truck. Carazal says that he didn't himself check to see if the truck was locked, and he didn't note a garage door opener in it. He then goes on to explain that the crime scene tasks are divided up amongst the entire team. And based on the testimony of CSI Carpenter that we covered a few months ago, it seems to me that everyone thought someone else was performing some of these important tasks. And the result was that they just never got done. Carazal figured Deputy Fisher would take care of it. Fisher thought Carpenter would do it, and Carpenter thought Carazal checked the interior of the truck. Something like that. Whatever the case may be, the bottom line is that no one ever actually attempted to open Jim's truck door, and no one inspected the inside of the vehicle. Carazal and Carpenter both said on the stand that the truck doors were locked, but then neither of them could testify that they actually checked. Next up, the EMS report from the first responders who treated Sandy at the scene. From the transcript. Did you ever interview the EMS folks that arrived at the scene to initially check on Jamie Melgar and attend to Sandra Melgar? Did you ever interview those folks? No. Did you ever, during the course of your investigation, review any kind of records that were generated by them as to what they observed, what they learned while they were treating there at the scene? No. Next in the transcript, there's an interesting exchange. Most of it occurred while the jury is out of the room, but the conversation between Mac, Barnett, and the judge is compelling. So, during the direct examination, Mac is asking Carazal about statements made by the neighbor across the street, Mr. Esman. The Esmans were the family that had the surveillance camera on their driveway. During a police interview, it was stated that the Esmans noticed the Melgar's garage door open during the day on the 23rd. Another neighbor later testified that he noticed the garage doors open as early as 7 a.m. that morning. But when Mac approaches the topic, Barnett puts the brakes on. The jury is excused, and this is what was said during the bench conference. These are Colleen Barnett's words. I don't know, the last time defense counsel went into it, I asked him after we had left court, and he told me that it was a something about a statement to the Chronicle. I didn't think that we would go into it again, and now we're going into it, and I see that that's where he's going, and there's nothing on, and he keeps calling it a supplement. It's not a supplement. He called it a tape, and it's not a tape. So obviously what the tape says is they saw it as early as 7.30 a.m. He has some kind of something about a Houston Chronicle article that somebody said that somebody told them that the door was open around midnight. I haven't seen that article. I don't know what it is, but it's quadruple hearsay, so I would object and ask that you keep that out. This whole exchange gets confusing. Barnett thinks that Mac is going to bring in Mr. Esman's statement to the Houston Chronicle. Seacrest said he's not going to do that. An argument ensues, and Mac says Mr. Esman will be on the stand later to explain that statement. I was curious about what said in the article mentioned, so I looked it up. Someone seeing the garage door opener at midnight would be significant. That would be confirmation that there was, in fact, an open point of entry for intruders. But I read the article, and that's not exactly what it says. From the article, quote, Neighbors had initially worried that the killing might have been part of a home invasion or a robbery gone wrong, especially considering the garage door had been open all night, Esman said. Mr. Esman did not end up testifying.
to the bench conference, Carousel was allowed to listen to Mrs. Esmond's interview that you heard in one of our follow-ups a month or so ago. He resisted a bit, but eventually acknowledged that Mrs. Esmond did say in her interview that another neighbor had told her that the garage door was open at 7.30 in the morning. He also acknowledges that although she said in the interview that it was a neighbor named Scott who told her about the garage door, Carlzall never actually made any attempt to interview Scott. A defense investigator did eventually track down Scott Lacey, and he did later testify that he noticed the garage door up in the early morning hours of Sunday. Next, Seacrest begins to question Carlzall about his knowledge of Sandy's illness, specifically the seizure disorder, lupus, and lupus fog. Mac asks him if he recalls Liz telling him about Sandy's history of lupus fog and retrograde amnesia. It reads as though the point he's trying to make is that Carazal didn't document these conversations in his report, but Carazal again is resisting. He says that he doesn't recall Liz telling him about the retrograde amnesia or the lupus fog. This prompts Seacrest to ask the jury to be excused so that he can play his interview with Liz to refresh his memory. That's done, and then we get back into the questioning. Mac points out that Carazal had told Liz that a doctor had checked Sandy out on the scene. Mac calls it a lie, Carazal calls it an error. To be honest, it's not really all that relevant. I think that the point is for Seacrest to present the detective to the jury as incompetent. He's trying to make them understand that Sandy's arrest was just one of many mistakes made by the Harris County Sheriff's Department. Next, Max sort of sets a trap for Curzal. Again, he's more than anything trying to discredit him and his investigation into the case. Secrets points out that in his own conversations with Liz, Curzal stated that he wasn't pointing fingers at anyone at that point. Mac says that Curzal clearly was, Curzal says that he wasn't, and then Mac has him read from his report where he attempted to file murder charges against Sandy at 2.15 a.m. on the night of the 24th, two days before he told Liz that he wasn't pointing fingers at anyone. And what I find interesting is the next few lines in Carazal's report. They actually asked Mac if he can read aloud the next few lines. And they read as follows. Quote, I advised District Attorney Tammy Thomas of the facts behind the death of Jamie Milgar. She advised murder charges would not be accepted. End quote. And then this. Thomas advised that I update her on status of the case as investigated and the conclusion of the evidence that was submitted for all DNA processing. So, getting back to my original question, what changed over the course of a year and a half before charges were accepted? The original DA refused the charges and wanted to see what the results of DNA testing would be before she would reconsider. And as you all know, the DNA testing came back with none of Sandy's DNA on Jim, none of Jim's DNA on Sandy, and several unknown profiles found on the scene, including on the closet doorknob, the backpack, the game case, the jewelry in the backpack, on the jewelry box, and on Sandy's bindings. Our next stop is Los Cucos. Mac asked Carazal who he spoke to at Los Cucos. It's not written in his report, and Carazal can't recall. He says probably the manager. Seacrest then asked if he bothered to speak with the server who waited on the Melgars just a few days before. He asked, did you ever think it might make sense to talk to the waiter to see that he might have information about how the couple were interacting on that night? And Carazal says no. Next, we get into our investigation of the man that I referred to last week as Randy. 
According to the testimony, a supervisor from Channel 13 called the police to report that their reporters who were on the scene that night noted Randy on the scene and he was acting strange. Mac asked if Carousel ever followed up with the Channel 13 folks, and he didn't. He never even called them to ask exactly what they meant by acting strange. He never interviewed them or even took a statement from them. What he did is what I described last week. He went to the house twice and knocked. The second time he left a business card, and that was it. This was the point when another local reporter stated on 2020 that there was audible laughter in the courtroom. But before the laughter came a pretty brutal exchange that goes on for pages. Mac is trying to get Carazal to acknowledge that Randy is a person of interest that should have been investigated. And Carazal is fighting him every step of the way. I don't remember. I can't recall. I guess if that's what the paper says, that kind of thing. Mac is clearly getting irritated by two things. Carazal's unwillingness to answer questions and the fact that he already knows the answers that he's avoiding. So what's happened is Seacrest pulled Randy's pawn shop records in 2014, as well as his criminal record. Randy has a long history of theft and violence, and even charges of violence with a knife. Here's part of the exchange from the transcript. Question. Well, let me put it this way. Sergeant Spurgeon tells you he received a phone call from Channel 13 or whatever. Guys out there at the crime scene acting strange. Isn't that kind of, isn't that something you would want to look at if somebody's at a crime scene looking strange? Yes. Isn't that something you would want to look at? Yes, if I've received information, yes. And the reason is, it's well known in law enforcement that certain kinds of criminals, like arsonists and murderers, like to come back to the crime scene. They're kind of curious. They kind of want to look at what you guys were doing. You've seen that before, have you not? No. How long have you been a homicide detective? Five or six years. Okay, okay. So, did you find out in your investigation that Randy has been arrested before carrying a knife? Did you find out that? Did you look? Dig deep enough to learn that? No. Next comes the exchange where Carazal explains that they went to Randy's door and knocked with no answer. They returned two hours later, knocked again, again no answer, but this time Carazal left a business card. Here's the actual exchange from the trial. So you know he lives a block away from the murder scene. He's acting strange. He has a criminal history. He likes to steal stuff and pawn stuff. And you go knock on the door at 2, knock on the door at 4, and then that's the end of your thorough, comprehensive investigation of this gentleman. Corazal responds, We leave our... We also leave our contact information there at the door. And that was the part where the courtroom erupted into laughter. Seacrest continues to walk Carazal through his reports. He points out emails that Liz Rose sent him directly, before the family had hired an attorney to help them. Liz is giving him detailed descriptions of watches that her father owned and asking the police if they have any of these items in their possession. Liz also points out that her cousin Jennifer, who was at the scene that night, had been repeatedly calling Carazal trying to give him some information, and she had not been contacted at all. I'm sure that I don't need to point out the irony here, but I'm going to anyway. During Sandy's investigation, she's promised that Carazal and Doucet are going to, quote, find out everything about her, and, quote, we're going to talk to everyone you're related to, end quote. But then a member of Jim's family is desperately trying to get a hold of him to give him information, and he ghosts her. Then we move on to the names of two suspects that Sandy's attorney provided to Carazal. And then we get to Sandy's recovered memory that we discussed last week. 
Refresh your memories. According to Sandy, she had a vivid memory of a young Hispanic woman wearing a red or burgundy sweater with her hair pulled back, staring at her while she felt someone behind her doing something with her arms. At first, her mind connected that incident with the moment when Herman was untying her. The next time she saw her niece Marissa, Sandy asked her if her friend was okay after seeing all of that. Marissa told her that she didn't have a friend with her that night, and crime scene photos show us that no one there was wearing a red or burgundy sweater. Also, none of the women had their hair pulled back. A few days later, Sandy finally connects the dots and remembers that that woman was standing in the bathroom while she was being tied up, not while she was being untied. That information was passed on to Carazal through email in January. But there's a little more to it than that. Included in that email was a description of the woman. Sandy had been shown several photos of individuals who could match the description of the woman she had seen. The email stated that she identified one of these women as possibly being the woman that she saw. She stated that she can't be sure, but it could be this particular person. Sandy was shown a photo of that woman because she was the girlfriend of one of the Melgar's renters. This particular renter had taken issue with the Melgar's because he was being evicted from their rental home, and in fact had trashed the rental house before vacating, including stabbing the walls with a knife. And his name was also passed on to the detectives in January. So this is the timeline according to Carazal's testimony. In January of 2013, Carazal is told by Sandy's lawyer that due to a conflict with this renter, Sandy would like this man to be investigated. Also, same month, the lawyer, Oesi, informed Carazal that Sandy remembers seeing a woman who fits the renter's girlfriend's description standing in the bathroom as she was being tied up. He's also informed that the renter had left and trashed the house, as I mentioned. Carazal does nothing with this information. Then in May of 2013, four months later, the lawyer reaches out to Carazal again to request that he go out to the rental house. On May 31st of 2013, he does in fact go check the house and take photos. Then, a full year goes by. Carazal does zero follow-up, makes no attempt to contact or interview the renter or his girlfriend, who has been identified by an eyewitness as possibly being in the home when the murder occurred. Zero follow-up for over a year. Then, in June of 2014... June 25th to be exact, a couple of weeks before Sandy is charged and indicted, District Attorney Connie Spence directs Carazal to go interview the renter and his girlfriend. Which kind of seems like buttoning up loose ends before charges were filed to me. But in any case, the interview was conducted, and Sandy was charged with murder. Next, Mac moves on to the safe. As we know, CSI Carpenter didn't bother to process it because, quote, if I had, the blood would have probably come back at Sandra Melgar's. But after the CSI team cleared the scene, a crime scene cleanup company came in and cleaned, including the safe. But they didn't do a very good job. There was still some blood visible on the front of the handle. And more importantly, there was blood on the back of the handle. This was noticed by Liz when moving things out of the house. And it's an important find. Blood on the front of the handle could be from some kind of transfer or even spatter. It's hard to tell because Carpenter didn't photograph it or process it before the cleaning company attempted to wipe the blood off. But the blood on the back of the handle is a clear indicator that someone wrapped their fingers around the safe handle, meaning they tried to open it. Now, you tell me, why would Sandy Melgar, after brutally murdering her husband, attempt to open her own safe? Thank you. 
Liz took photos of the safe handle, both front and back, and sent it to the lawyer, who then sent it to Carazal on February 8, 2013, about six weeks after the murder. The fact of the matter is that Carpenter never processed the safe, and Carazal never did anything with the safe either, even after Sandy's lawyer sent the photos. But based on the transcripts, it seems that Carazal did state in his report that the safe had been processed. But in reality, Carpenter looked at those photos that Liz sent four years later. And that's a pretty simple and clear statement of fact, but in the transcript, it takes pages to get there. Carazal is playing dumb, and Barnett is objecting to every question. It's painful to read. Let me give you a little example of how Carazal handles answering these uncomfortable questions. After the safe, Mac asks him if he recalls sending the cell phones away for forensic testing. Carazal does. Then he asks if that analysis helped advance his case. Carazal says that it didn't. Then Seacrest goes into the computers. Carazal made a request for the Greater Houston Regional Forensic Laboratory to analyze the computers. But the detective doesn't recall doing that. So Mac presents him with his own report, you know, to refresh his memory. Barnett objects, which leads to a heated bench conference. Mac is clearly getting pissed at this point. Then he goes back to Carazal and asks him to read his own words from the report, again, to refresh his memory. Now, to really understand the gravity of the bit I'm about to read to you, you need to understand something about the rules of evidence. If I understand things correctly, police reports are considered hearsay. You can't read them aloud in open court. So, what's done is if a witness is claiming they didn't do something that they clearly did, because it's in their report, they'll be asked to read it over silently to refresh their memory. And then they're asked the question again. Usually, this is no big deal. I mean, how can you deny that you did something when you documented it in your own words? Well, this is how. From the transcript. Mac, read this first paragraph I'm pointing to right here to yourself. Okay, starting on, down to that last word. You read it to yourself? Yes. Is it correct to say that on March 27th of 2014, you advised that the folks over at the Greater Houston Regional Forensic Laboratory that there were certain words that you wanted them to search for when they went through that hard drive? Fair statement? I don't recall that. Well, let's see if this will refresh your recollection. Is that what you're going to do during your testimony? That if you don't want to answer a question, you just say, I don't recall? Even after reading it directly out of his own report, he doesn't recall. Barnett objected to Mac's last statement, by the way, and the jury was instructed to disregard that question. In this next sequence of questioning, Mac is trying to draw out of Carzal the fact that he misplaced a piece of evidence. Just like with most of these uncomfortable questions, he's resisting answering as best he can. Along with that, Barnett is objecting all along the way. For example, while trying to introduce a report that Carazal created about a piece of evidence, it was Sandy Socks, by the way. I've told you about this before. After Carazal left the employee of Harris County, they were found in his file cabinet. So, Secrets presents Carazal with his own report to refresh his memory. Carazal acknowledges and testifies that he himself wrote the report. Mac tries to enter it into evidence, and Barnett takes Carazal on voir dire. In layman's terms, the best way I can describe this process is when one attorney wants to enter a document into evidence, they have to offer it to the opposing attorney for objection. That attorney then has the option to question the witness to see if they actually have any personal knowledge of that particular piece of evidence or document. In this case, Barnett presents Carazal with his own report. 
the report that he just stated under oath that he himself personally typed up. From the transcript, Barnett. Did you write that? Corazal. I don't recall because I don't know what the actual, what this is coming from. Barnett. Okay, so you were saying that you don't recognize what is Defense Exhibit 9. Corazal. Yes. So then Barnett objects to entering the report into evidence because, and I quote, the witness doesn't recognize that. The judge sustains, and the report doesn't get entered into evidence. And Mac is clearly frustrated, and rightly so. And this is why. From the transcript, just a few minutes before Carazal claimed to not know who wrote the report. Quote from Mac. Is that a statement that you made? Corazal. A type summary of fact, yes. Seacrest. But is that your statement? You type that up? Corazal. Yes. Okay, so the words on this document are your own words, correct? Corazal. Yes. So in case you didn't track all that, Mac wants to enter the report into evidence. He asks Corazal if it's his report. He says yes. He asks him if he personally typed it up. He says yes. He says, are these your words? He says yes. Barnett takes him on Bordier, says, do you recognize this document? And he says no. And so the document doesn't get entered. Next, Mac wants Carzal to explain to the jury all of the investigation that he did to figure out the nature of Jim and Sandy's relationship. After multiple objections from Barnett, we end up with this. Mac, based on the totality of your investigation in this case, have you ever spoken to one human being who has provided you information that established or even led you to believe that they had a bad relationship? Corazal. No. That they had any kind of domestic violence? No. Direct examination ends with a pretty uncomfortable exchange. Remember a few weeks back, we heard from Sandy that after the interrogation ended and the tape was turned off, after she said she was done talking and needed a lawyer, she says that she was kept in that room for hours and that Carazal returned to the room and continued to interrogate her without the tapes rolling, illegally, since she invoked her right to an attorney. But in Carazal's report, he states that at 1.10 a.m., Sandy is transported back to the crime scene. And at 2.15 a.m., over an hour later, Carazal attempts to file charges with the DA. According to his report, Sandy was already gone at that point, which I think we all know seems pretty unlikely. If you're about to charge someone with murder, you're probably not going to just let her go first. And according to Sandy, he didn't. She says that Carzal continued to question her and threaten her during the time that Carzal says she was already back at her home. But then Mac presents Carzal with the dispatch log. It's protocol in Harris County that any time a female is transported by a male officer, they have to document that trip with the radio operators. The dispatch log shows that Sandy was transported back to the scene at 3.11 a.m., two hours after Carzal says she was, and about an hour after he attempted to file charges. From the transcript. We start with Mac. So I want to know, if you finished interrogating her at 1.10 and she left to go home, where was she for two hours? I don't know. Ask the patrolman. The reality is that once you turn off the audio videotape, the games begin, don't they? No. You threatened her with a death penalty off the record, did you not? No. Would you ever admit it? Admit that? I didn't do that. I don't do that. So where was she for two hours? Barnett objects to that last bit. The judge sustains, and Mac passes Carazal for cross-examination. The beginning of cross-examination is an absolute shit show. 
So here's a fun fact that I was personally unaware of before reading this transcript and doing a little research. Witnesses can be questioned differently than normally allowed if they are declared and deemed to be by the judge a hostile or adverse witness. Leading questions are not allowed during direct examination. However, judges will typically allow a little more leeway on leading questions during cross, but it's still limited. However, and this is the part I was unaware of, attorneys are allowed to ask leading questions if the witness is declared hostile or adverse. This came up in a bench conference during direct, and now it's brought up again during cross. Barnett tried to convince the judge that Carlzall should be considered a hostile witness to the state, which would allow her to ask leading questions. The jury is excused and Carlzall is questioned in front of the judge. They call this a hearing, to see if Carlzall should be considered a hostile witness to the state. Barnett's argument is based around the fact that Carlzall at one point worked for the DA's office, he then returned to the sheriff's department, and then he was fired for backdating a warrant in another case, and therefore he would be hostile to Barnett. She even points out that Seacrest is planning to call two witnesses, who Barnett says are her friends, to testify that Carzal is not trustworthy. The whole ordeal ends with this, from the judge. All right, well, based on what I've heard so far, I don't find on what he said by the fact that another two witnesses that are your friends will state that he has a reputation for untruthfulness. I don't know how that makes him uncooperative to the case. Once you establish that, and if you do, you can reapproach on deeming him hostile. Unless, if you have some authority that can give me direction otherwise, I'm just basing on what I know reading the law. Barnett. I didn't think being un-not cooperative was the only issue. Judge. Uncooperative, reluctant, or unwilling to testify. You said that he came here in response to both subpoenas, and he was lead investigator on a case to which the state is now prosecuting. So until he becomes uncooperative, or you give me authority otherwise, he's not a hostile witness. Barnett. Well, he certainly didn't want to be brought in by the bailiff. After all that, Carlzall is brought back in for cross-examination. Burnett begins with having him confirm that he did not see any signs of forced entry. There's a bit of sleight of hand here. She talks about the garage doors, asks if there's any way to manually open them from outside if they're closed, and then transitions into asking, quote, So if we assume both garage doors were down and nobody from outside accessed the house, what does that tell us about who killed Jamie Melgar? Next, we move on to Barnett having Carzal explain how innocent family members of victims respond to questions. And then he points out that Sandy wasn't answering his questions during her interrogation. And of course, he's entitled to his opinion on that. And Jim Fitzgerald is entitled to his, which was that Sandy appeared to be trying to answer his questions as best she could. From here, Barnett is trying to paint a picture that nothing was stolen from the house mostly having Carazal answer that he was not getting good information from Liz on December 26. He says that Liz only told him that there was a TV missing, but not where the TV was located. She told him about a Seiko watch, but the police had that in their possession. Of course, there's no mention of Liz's follow-up email directly to Carazal with specific descriptions of multiple other very expensive watches that were missing and not in the sheriff's department's possession. He also says that he has no way of knowing what prescription medication might have been missing because Liz never gave him any specifics. From the transcript. What else did she ask you to take a look at? The medication. All right, and how would you be able to determine what medication is missing? We didn't have anything to go off. We didn't have a list of medications. I can understand how it may have been difficult for Carazal to figure out what medications that he should have been looking for if Liz never told him, except she did. 
Let me refresh your memory with this short clip from Liz's interview with Carazal. The interview that both she and the detectives recorded. Get a tablet out. Anything you think's missing, because we need to start searching for the items that are missing. Well, so, somebody mean, came in and stole it. I know her jewelry's, I know some of her jewelry's missing. I know her phones are gone. I don't know if you have them or if. We have the phones. What about we the computers, phones. the laptops? We have computers. And laptops? Yes. Um, there's several laptops in the house. Several don't work or aren't. That's also a desktop computer. Yeah. That probably went with us, too. Okay. Yeah, they probably have There's a There was a TV in her room, a flat-screen TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that might be gone. Okay. There'll be a reg- reasonably large amount of prescription medicine for yeah, obvious re- hydrocodone, reasons. hydrocodone, things like that. Medications, medicine. For her pain. Yeah. Um. Probably diazepam, things like this, for pain and seizures. Um, I, I was under the impression as well that you guys didn't find a gun. But there was a gun. My dad had a 22. The truth of the matter is that Liz did tell them what medications they should be looking for. She mentions hydrocodone, phenobarbital, and diazepam, just in that little bit of interview. And you also just heard her tell Carlzal that the missing TV was a flat screen from her parents' bedroom. The reality of the situation is, while Carlzal is trying to put the responsibility of investigating the stolen items onto Liz, the detectives couldn't figure out what medications were missing because they never inventoried or documented what medications were actually left behind when they processed the scene. She could have given him a written list of exactly what medications were missing, and it wouldn't have mattered, because Carzal had absolutely no clue what medications were actually found at the crime scene. And the fact is, he is perjuring himself on the stand when he is making most of these statements. The proof is in his own recordings of Liz's interview. Barnett continues on, blaming Liz for the investigative shortcomings. She brings up a box of Corona beer that was pointed out by Liz. Liz told Corazal that her parents didn't typically drink beer, so they should check out the box and bottles that were found in the garage. The detectives did pull some fingerprints off the six-pack, and they came back to Sandy. Not a big deal. Liz is just trying to help them find any kind of lead, and this one didn't pan out. But all this is being presented to the jury as though Liz was intentionally misleading the detectives. Which is stunning because she is the one that found the backpack in the garage that Carpenter missed. Can you imagine why she might have felt the need to prod the detectives a little bit to figure out who killed her father? Remember, Liz Rose is not a detective. She was a grieving daughter who was just trying to help. Corazal then assures Barnett and the jury that his investigation was thorough. He also claims that on the night Sandy was at the station for her interrogation, he did not try to file murder charges. He simply had a conversation with the prosecutor to fill her in on his investigation, or so he says. Although his report says that the prosecutor, quote, would not accept murder charges. And Sandy says that he told her repeatedly that he was going to charge and arrest her while she was still in the station that night. Barnett goes on for a long time about how Sandy said repeatedly in her interrogation that she doesn't think the garage door is open. And then we have one of the most, let's call it, colorful exchanges I've ever read in a transcript. Barnett asks Carazal about a potential $500,000 life insurance policy. Mac objects because anything that he would have to say about the policy would be hearsay. Barnett wants to respond to the objection and the judge calls the two up for a bench conference. From the transcript, the judge What's your response? Barnett. That he does, he's spoken with the insurance people about the policy. Seacrest. Which is called hearsay, and she knows that. 
She wants to get a half a million dollar insurance in front of the jury. She should do it. Barnett. It's important. Seacrest. Bring a witness. I can't cross-examine numbnuts over there. The objection was sustained. Barnett finishes cross with having Carlzell acknowledge that he did an investigation into Jim's life insurance policies. And then Mac pounces on redirect. I'm just going to read the entire exchange to you from the transcript because I think it's important for you to know how thorough of an investigation this was. Mac. Did you find out how long that the Melgars had a life insurance in place? No. Do you know how many years it had sat there and hadn't even been altered in any way? Did you look into that and think that that might be important? Yes. Side note, did any of you catch the contradiction there? Anyway, back to the transcript. Are you trying to suggest to our jury that Sandra Melgar stabbed her husband 31 times so she could get the filthy lucre? Is that what you're trying to suggest to the jury? I don't understand. You're trying to say that she killed her husband, who she loved, and you have no evidence to the contrary, had a wonderful relationship, but she killed him for life insurance money. Is that what you're trying to tell the jury? No. What I'm trying to tell the jury is that I do a thorough job, and that's one thing I would check in an instant like this. That's what I'm trying to tell the jury. Since you do want to do a thorough job, tell the jury about the financial situation of the Melgars. Tell us what your financial investigation revealed. With the... Later, went ahead. I'm talking about the financial investigation. I want to know... And then Barnett objects, saying... I would ask that the witness be allowed to answer the question that was asked. Seacrest, let me rephrase it. Barnett. I would ask that the witness be allowed to answer the question that was asked. Seacrest. Let me rephrase it because I don't want to go into something that's not admissible. The judge, rephrase your question. Mac. Did you look at bank accounts? No. Did you consult any type of accountants? No. Do you have any idea what their financial situation is? No. So did you conduct any financial investigation? That's what I'm asking you. Yes. In what way? This, where I started with the insurance. No, I'm not asking you about any insurance investigation, a financial investigation. Right. Do you know if they owed money? No. Do you know if they had any money in the bank of significant sums? No. Do you know what kind of investments they had? No. Do you know whether there was any outstanding bills? No. Do you know if they had any debt? No. Did you do any kind of investigation about that? No. What you did and what's done in every homicide investigation is you're going to see whether or not some kind of life insurance policy exists, right? Yes. Are you aware that employees of Houston Independent School District, by definition, are afforded life insurance as part of their salary package? No. You're saying it's not to, or you just don't know? I don't know. Mac then pretty much undoes everything Barnett accomplished during Cross regarding the garage door. Barnett had cherry-picked a few of Sandy's responses to questions about it. Mac then proceeds to have Carousel read the rest of Sandy's responses about the garage door, when she went into the house, and whether or not they kept the interior door locked, which of course painted an entirely different picture. As you all know, Sandy said that she assumes Jim would have closed the door, because he usually does, but she went in before him so she can't be sure. Then, Mac circles back to Carousel's statement during cross-examination that Liz never gave him specifics about what medications were missing. Surprisingly, he actually admits that he perjured himself although Mac allows him not to use the word lie or perjury. Quote, Okay, so when you testified that she didn't say anything about specific medications, you're inaccurate. Let's be charitable. You're inaccurate, right? 
Corazol. Correct. Corazol's testimony ends with a weird little exchange. Mac, no further questions. Judge, to Barnett. Any recross? Barnett. I have a lot of questions, Judge. Pass the witness. As this episode draws to a close, I want to remind you of my original, seemingly elementary question. If there wasn't enough evidence to charge Sandy with murder on December 24, 2012, and the prosecutor wanted to see what was discovered from the DNA testing, and the DNA provided no evidence of Sandy's involvement, then how was Sandy Melgar ever charged in her husband's murder a year and a half later? Even through the cross-examination by the prosecution of the lead investigator on the case, we heard absolutely nothing that was revealed during the investigation that implicated Sandy in any way. Nothing. The case was built on the night that Jim's body was found. A case that doesn't even qualify in my books as circumstantial. I would classify it as speculative. From there, Carzal found out that Jim and Sandy had a loving and happy marriage that there was no incriminating DNA or fingerprint evidence tying Sandy to the murder. And the reason that I'm taking the time to really dig deep into Carazal's investigation is because it is critically important for us to understand not only how Sandra Melgar was wrongfully convicted, but also to figure out what wasn't done so that we know where to go from here. Here's a brief summary of what Sean Carazal and his team didn't do while investigating Jim's murder. They didn't preserve the 911 tapes. They didn't check to see if the entry door from the garage locked, even after Sandy told them that she didn't think that it worked. They didn't check to see if the fence gate to the backyard was locked. Carazal not only never interviewed a single family member, but he didn't even review Herman Melgar's recorded and transcribed statement. They didn't check to see if Jim's truck doors were locked or if there was a garage door opener inside. They never contacted or interviewed the EMS crew that treated Sandy that night, or even read her reports. They never contacted or interviewed Scott Lacey after Mrs. Essman told them that he had told her that he saw the Melgar's garage door open in the early morning hours of the 23rd. They never made any attempt to contact or speak to the server that waited on the Melgar's on the night of Jim's murder. They never followed up on or interviewed Randy, the stranger from down the street. They never contacted the Channel 13 news crew, who actually gave them the tip about Randy in the first place. They never checked the Leeds database again after December of 2012. They did wait four months to inspect the rental house after they were directed to do so by Sandy's lawyer, and they did wait a year and a half to interview the renter that was identified by the family as someone who had a problem with Jim, and that Sandy may have seen his girlfriend in the bathroom when she was being tied up. And they didn't do any investigation into Jim and Sandy's financials. And most importantly, they never bothered to interview Sandy ever again after she walked out of the police station on December 24th, 2012. How do people get convicted of crimes that they didn't commit? This is how. Tunnel vision and a lack of a proper investigation. 
It's easy to sit back and say that there were no leads on any other suspects, or that, albeit weak and speculative, all the evidence that you have points to only one person, when you never actually look at any other possibility, which is exactly what happened here. I think that Max Seacrest said it best in his closing arguments. Where's the beef? Where's the investigation? Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 6 logo was also created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our banner images and type font across all of our logos was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Colby, Rachel Timberman, and Liz Rose. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, and we also have reward levels on the Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at Truth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.